Amen to that beautiful song, Give Me a New Heart. And I hope that that's our prayer and heart's desire as a Christian. You know, before we got saved, the Bible says that the natural man's heart is uh, desperately wicked, isn't it? And who can know it? And we know that the heart speaks of the seat of our whole being. But when uh, we got saved, we've been born again to God's family. God gave us a new heart, a fresh heart, a heart that desires the things of God. And uh, it will be wise for us if we give God our hearts first, isn't it? And thanks be, for, uh, thanks be to God for his faithfulness, his goodness in our lives. Thank God that we have the opportunity and the privilege to worship him the first day of the week. You know, it's not Monday, amen? The first day of the week is Sunday. And this is the day that the Lord had made. The Bible says, the psalmist said, we should rejoice and be glad in it. And um, in all things, we want to give God first. When we wake up in the morning, the first few uh, breaths that we take, inhale and exhale, we need to give thanks to God for waking us up, isn't it? Giving us a new life. Every day is a gift from God. That's why it's called present, isn't it? And we need to thank God for all his blessings. We give our um, offerings to the Lord on the first day of the week as we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. In his storehouse in the church, we give him our first fruits, everything first, because we know that we will not be here without the grace of God, isn't it? We know that we will not be here without his love, and we can love him back because the Bible says he first loved us. We love God, we love the Lord because he first loved us. Since um, he is worthy to be given all the glory, honor, and praise whereby we are gathered here today in the first few hours of this morning, to worship him in spirit and in truth. So thank you for your presence. I hope you are uh, ready physically, uh, mentally, emotionally, but most of all spiritually to um, take heed to the word of God. And let's bow our heads first. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's ask him to um, be in our midst and work in a special way. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we bless your name. We thank you for this beautiful day that you've given to us. Uh, we can see light everywhere. We can see the sun's rays in our windows this morning uh, on the way here to church. Truly, you have blessed us with so much. And truly, we can say this day is beautiful because you have you had made it beautiful in your time. It is also a blessed day because we have spiritual freedom in Christ. We have religious freedom to still come to church carry our Bibles, open it, and study it, and fellowship with uh, our brethren in Christ. And we know, the Lord, that it's also not just a blessed day, a beautiful day, but a bountiful day, because we expect great things from Thee. And we would like to attempt good things for Thee, Lord, this morning. So may, we, may you accept and receive our offer of thanksgiving before you as a sweet-smelling savor, our praises in singing, our stewardship in our giving, uh, your message in the preaching. Lord, may everything be done in the spirit, in the strength of the Lord, out of the right mind and heart. And we pray, Father, that your uh, goodness and great, greatness and graciousness will be seen in our midst today. And it can also be, Lord, it can overflow in our lives as Christians. Make us, Lord, as a better servant of thee, as we leave this place, Lord, we are nothing without you. 
I am nothing, Lord, without you. I'm so limited. I'm so frail. So I ask you, Lord, for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, for your strength. And we know, Lord, that if we confess our sins, if we are just honest enough and humble enough to, to see our shortcomings, our, um, uh, our frailties, Lord, you are there to lift us up and strengthen us. So we ask, Lord, for your blessing throughout the whole day. We pray that you bless also our brethren who are listening, tuning in, in their respective locations, wherever they are. May um, God's word, Lord, will be a special blessing in their lives today. And we pray, Lord, that the, the name of Christ will be magnified and lifted up. And we pray if there's a person listening to uh, the sound of my voice to this broadcast from here or in the future that's not yet, Lord, saved, they don't know Christ as their Savior, may... Um, Realize, Lord, that there's a judgment coming. There's a storm brewing in the horizon. And in order to escape the wrath of God against sin, they need to receive Christ as the Lord and personal Savior, in whom our Heavenly Father is always pleased. So we pray, Lord, that they will surrender their heart and life to Jesus and repent of their sins and receive the free gift of eternal life through what He did on the cross for us. And we pray also that you edify the faith, and strengthen uh, uh, the mindset of thy people as we see the day approaching of your soon return. And we ask all these things in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen. We will continue our uh, series of studies in the life of Christ, the gospel according to Jesus. And we are now in Matthew chapter 24. And uh, this is the uh, Olivet Discourse. And this is a major of teachings of Christ where he deals with prophetic teachings that had happened uh, about 40 years after he had uh, predicted these things to happen in the nation of Israel and also forthcoming in our time right now because we are living in the last days. Since Christ came, since he incarnated in the flesh, since uh, he ascended up into heaven after his death and crucifixion, we are now in the last days, and I tell you, we are in the latter end of the last days. So we have uh, predictive prophecies that we've been studying. And I want to tell you that biblical prophecies of the end times is not designed to scare us, but to prepare us. All right, take note. Biblical last days, latter end time prophecies is not designed by God to scare us, but to prepare us. It's not given to excite the curious, you know, because, oh, things to come. That's interesting. That's exciting topic. But it's not just given to give us excitement if you're curious about things to come. But also it is given to exhort us. Exhort us who are consecrated or committed to the Lord. All right? We need to be exhorted and uh, we need to be admonished because the Bible is God's word. We have to preach the whole counsel of God. So these prophecies that were written 2,000 years ago that were given by Jesus Christ to his disciples in the Mount of Olives or Olivet, he was given to them not to gratify their curiosity but to guide them in their consciences and conversations. 
So, our text right now is Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. And in order for us to really understand Matthew 24, 14, we will have a, a parallel study of Revelation chapter 7. If you're with us during our Revelation study series every joint Friday Bible study, you might have a, a little background of uh, this chapter, Revelation chapter 7. So I'd like to ask you if you could stand in your feet, please, and um, let's read God's Word together. And it's always great to hear God's people read God's Word together, isn't it? Uh, hearing the, the flipping of the pages of God's Holy Word. And um, if you're not able to bring your Bible, but I hope you, you have one with some pen and notes, you know. Uh, I hope you can also look at it um, in a digital format. So we will read Matthew 24, verse 14, and also the whole chapter of Revelation, chapter 7. Because in order to understand this is passage of Scripture, we will have that reference in Revelation, chapter 7, and it will be the bulk of our studies. We've been studying from Matthew 24, verses 1 to 8, our first message. And this last Sunday, I believe, from verses 9 to 14, and we will concentrate, concentrate on verse 14. So if you're there, Matthew 24, 14, um, say amen. 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 And then put your hand there and you also flip to Revelation chapter 7. So let's begin first reading Matthew 24, 14. Begin. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Okay, let's turn to Revelation chapter 7. And after these things, isn't it? Uh, it tells there, of course, what are those things that had happened? Things that had happened in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Um, we know chapter 1 of Revelation is a glimpse of the glorified Christ. Uh, John, the apostle, the beloved, had a vision in the Isle of Patmos where he was exiled. And God gave him the last book of the Bible, of the New Testament. So he saw Christ glorified, ascended up into heaven. And then chapter 2 and 3, um, Jesus Christ gave him a message to the seven churches in Asia Minor who are present during that time, who are also present chronologically right now in our day and age. And also, those seven churches, their characteristics are present in all Bible-believing, genuine churches all over the world. All right? So that's chapter 2 and 3. And then chapter 4, the church was never mentioned all the way to chapter 19 because chapter 4, John was given, it's like he was raptured, he was taken he was uh, translated into heaven to see these wonderful things that will happen during the times of the great uh, tribulation. And then chapter 5, we see here the one that was worthy to open the book. He opened the sealed book. And the first four sealed books are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. All right? The first horseman was riding a white horse, which speaks of the ultimate antichrist with a bow. You know, but without arrow. He's the world dictator and leader. All right? It speaks of dominion. And then the second rider of the, uh, the horse in chapter 6 is a red horse. It's given power to give um, a war. It's called division. And then the third rider is the black horse, which gives power over the commerce and economy of the world. That's deprivation. There's great famine. And the fourth rider of the horse is a pale horse which speaks of death and hell that followed him. So, I tell you, we are not in the tribulation yet, isn't it? Because before the tribulation comes, 
the saints of God, the believers, the born again, true, genuine Christians will have to be taken out of this world, be snatched away, which we, which we call in Bible term the rapture. And then the man of sin, the man uh, who is the ultimate con uh, antichrist has to be revealed as the false messiah, the world dictator with charisma. So we know he's around, but he's not revealed yet. So with the last message last Sunday, welcome to the tribulation. You will now welcome it because you won't be here. Amen? You'll be spared, but the devil and his minions will welcome the people that will be in. So that's chapter 6. And then we go chapter 7. After these things, all right, there is a pause, a parenthesis in the sixth seal before the seventh seal is open, as there is always a parenthesis in the trumpet judgments and the vile judgment in chapter in, in 6 and 7 of those judgments. So those are the contexts after this. Things. So let's read chapter 7 of Revelation, begin. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor of any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given, to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all the nations, and kindreds, and people, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may... Be seated. Thank you so much for standing with me. Um, you're all aware of what's happening in the Middle East right now, isn't it? 
with the current news that we've been listening. And I just want to start this message with uh, a reading from one of uh, a prominent evangelical preachers uh, residing in, I believe, in the West Coast, Dr. Greg Laurie. He had a blog that um, is entitled, Israel, the Eye of the Hurricane. And last Sunday in our message, I, show you, uh, I showed you a map of where Israel is located in the Middle East and where the Arab world had, uh, you know, uh, their lands and territories and occupation. And it's a small speck of land, isn't it? Compared to the rest of uh, that part of the world, the Arab world and the rest of the nations. This little sliver of land known as Israel is practically in the headlines every day, isn't it? And even more so in the recent weeks as the nation has been under attack. We know Hamas and Iran-backed terrorist organization fired thousands of rockets into Israel, hitting population centers. If it were not for the Iron Dome defense system stopping 90% of those rockets, the damage would have been far worse. Let's pray that the ceasefire agreement holds. It's a unilateral ceasefire agreement. And you can search more about that. All right? What is it about Israel, and specifically Jerusalem, that draws the focus and attention of the entire world? The answer is quite simple. Israel is the eye of the hurricane, of the great event of the end times. See, the prophetic time clock start ticking the moment when Israel was reborn as a nation again, as had been prophesied by Ezekiel and Haggai in the Old Testament. After being without any national identity, after being scattered from the rest of the world after the Roman Empire's uh, tyranny for 2,000 years, what we call their dispura, they, they regained their identity as a nation again, May 14, 1948. And the United Nations, especially this great country of America, is um, a, a great country and a, a world power that recognizes the sovereignty of Israel. Since then, the prophetic time clock of the latter end of the last days start ticking. And we can see the signs of the coming of the great, of the great tribulation. Jacob's trouble, or the 70th week of Daniel, so to speak, in the Bible. So Israel is the eye of the hurricane of the great event of the end times. God predicted this long ago. Israel occupies center and stage in God's drama of the ages, and we see that playing out before our very eyes nowadays. God gave Abraham a special promise, isn't it, in Genesis chapter 12, when he said, I will bless those who bless thee, and I will curse those who curses thee, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this was fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because he's in the lineage of David, the promised eternal king of Israel, and also from the lineage of Abraham, in whom this unconditional covenant and promise was given. Indeed, all the families of the earth be blessed. Indeed, when a person trusted Christ as their Lord and personal Savior, regardless of their nationality, of their skin color, of their background, of, or their education status or social standing, they are forever blessed because now they have a home in heaven, they have their sins forgiven, and they have now the promises pertained to the children of God. So indeed, truly, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And God would raise a nation out of Abraham's loins or lineage or 
his bloodline that will bless the whole world. And that is the promised Messiah who came 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem manger. So one of the reasons that God had blessed the United States of America is because of our support of the nation of Israel. It's also why it's a big mistake to move away from that. Take a look at history and you'll see that it turns out badly for any nation that raises its hand against Israel or the Jewish people. Nations such as Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Rome, and in more modern times, Spain and Germany have turned against Israel and paid the price. Because Israel is still the apple of God's eye. Even though he's put in a shelf in a biblical uh, worldview right now, because the church, the present day of age, the age of the Gentiles, is seen in the big picture, but God is never through to his people. So the city of peace known as Jerusalem, ironically, that what it means, city of peace, yet more wars, think about it, yet more wars have been fought at her gates than any other city on earth. In fact, God predicted that Jerusalem would be the hotspot of the globe. Jerusalem became the capital of Israel under King David and was actually known as the city of David, isn't it? It was in Jerusalem that the first and second temples were built. Also, it was in Jerusalem at Mount Moriah, remember, in Genesis 22, which is the area we know today as the Temple Mount. We were there. We saw it. Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount is, that is also the place where Abraham willingly offered his son Isaac to God. And God tested his faith. And he passed the test, and God provided a sacrifice, a ram caught in the thicket, isn't it? A wonderful passage of scripture. After the modern state of Israel was declared in Israel uh, as, a, as a nation in Israel in 1948, a war of independence left Jerusalem divided, with Jordan maintaining control over the old city, including the Temple Mount and most of the historic sites. That's in 1948. But during, during the Six-Day War, if you remember our you know, baby boomers here. I'm not around yet during the time. But during the Six-Day War in 1967, when Israel was attacked, they were able to regain control of the entire city, the old city. And for the first time in many centuries, Jerusalem was under the control of the Jewish people again. And the prophetic clock started ticking. The Bible tells us that the final conflict of humanity will not be fought over Paris or Rome, or Los Angeles, or New York, but it will be Jerusalem. That's why the Bible tells us to pay attention to Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of it, all right? Jesus said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Speaking through the prophet Zechariah, God said, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples. That's in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 to 3. And today, currently, we have leaders like the president of Iran who frequently speak of wiping off Israel off the map. You might dismiss this as ridiculous, but they are developing nuclear weapons in Iran right now. It's been happening for the past years. Therefore, Israel is in a very difficult situation, and they take this threat seriously. 
The Bible speaks of a large force known as Magog from the extreme north of Israel attacking her. And it's very clear in pointing out this will happen in the last days as the Bible predicts in Ezekiel chapter 38. So from the scriptures, we know that Magog was the second son of Japheth, isn't it? According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Magog settled north of the Black Sea. Then there were Tubal and Meshach, the fifth and sixth sons of Japheth, whose descendants settled south of the Black Sea. These people came together and were known as Gog and Magog. And in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 2, God says, they are to the north of Israel. And any map we have today would show you that Russia sits on the extreme north of Israel. So is Russia Magog? You know, it could be. What else? Huh? So the Bible also mentions allies that will march with Magog against Israel. Until very recently, there was no real alliance to speak of between Russia and Iran. However, take note, Russia huh, recently signed a billion-dollar deal to sell missiles and other weapons to Iran. Happened just a few weeks from now. So we are really seeing the latter end of the last days, the signs of the coming great tribulation happening. Remember I told you the rumors of wars? It's like a, a, a woman in travail about to give birth. It started low and the intensity goes higher and higher. It started slow and the frequency starts getting faster and faster. So all of these things of famines and pestilences and earthquake and wars will be happening. We can feel it right now, but it's not yet the great tribulation. It will maximize and climax when the time comes. All right? But we are given those signs. And there are thousands of Iranian nuclear scientists now who have been trained in Russia by Russian scientists. So while no one can say with absolute certainty that Magog is Russia, this much we know. A force known as Magog from the north of Israel will attack her. And when they attack, God will step in and save Israel. But five-sixths of this invading force will be turned back, and then the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon Israel, and a great revival will swap the nation. And this is what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 24, the times of the first half of the Great Tribulation and the second half beginning from chapter 24, verse 26. But take note, this cannot happen until something else happens first. God has been working in this era theologians call the church age waiting to bring those last few believers in before he pours out his spirit upon Israel. The Apostle Paul spoke of this writing, and he said in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, and I like to paraphrase, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, that some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of the Gentiles come to Christ, until the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. God will go back to his nation, Israel, and will fulfill the last week in the prophecies of the 70th week of Daniel. The last week, which is the seven years. Once that last person, I believe, comes to Christ, God will uh, catch all Christians up into heaven, into the rapture, then he will pour out his spirit upon Israel, but not before. In the meantime, we need to be alert. We need to wake up to the fact that Jesus Christ is returning and that time is short. And we need to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Isn't it? Factual. It's biblical. And thanks be to God that this is given to us, the Bible predictive prophecy, once again, not to scare us, 
but to prepare us. Because we don't want Christ coming for us unprepared. We did not make our arrangements, isn't it? Because it will be a shame. So, our text in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, tells of the gospel reaching all the earth in a short period of time. It says there in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom. You know, in our Bibles, we see different kinds of gospel. There is the gospel of the kingdom that was preached by Christ and even John the Baptist, which is still part of the Old Testament. What is this gospel of the kingdom? It's the 1,000-year reign of Christ, that they need to be repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. But what did they do? They reject the presentation of John the Baptist and Christ about the gospel of the kingdom because they thought that the, the kingdom that will be promised to them is a physical material kingdom, but God is establish, establishing first a spiritual kingdom, unshakable kingdom, and also he will give them that kingdom, but they reject the Messiah, and they were put in a shelf, and the times of the Gentiles had happened. So this gospel of the kingdom will be given, will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes back again after the seven years of tribulation and usher in his millennial reign. But you think of this. What the church has failed to do for 2,000 years will be accomplished quickly during the tribulation. Because the Bible says in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be published or shall be preached in all the world. Wow. In all the world. That's everybody in the world. For a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. So you see, signs of the times are everywhere. Don't allow, don't allow your mind to become dull to the fact just because you've heard this preaching and teaching many times if you've been a Christian for some time that it's still far. Every day that we live, the coming of Christ is nearer, isn't it, than the day before. It's even closer, and, and I believe it could happen in our very lifetime. The first phase of his second advent or coming the rapture of the church, the rapture of the believers can occur at any moment. It's imminent. It could happen any moment. Amen. And it can usher out all who have been born again, and it will usher in the great tribulation. We are closer to it than ever before. Last Sunday, we began dealing with the question about the tribulation. Of course, as I said, it will not happen first before we get out of this world, as salt and light of this world. As the Holy Spirit is a great restrainer of evil, and Satan's full program cannot go abroad in this world without that happening first, the restrainer being taken away. And the other question is, will their people be saved during the Great Tribulation, these seven years? Of course, the answer is yes. We read that in Revelation chapter 7. seven. You know, the clear answer is yes. But you know what? The people that will be saved will be not you because you're already in heaven. And also, those people who heard a clear presentation of the gospel and they were convicted of their sin but they rejected it, they won't have any more chance for them when that time comes. You know that the, the first half of the tribulation will be bad enough once all the Christians are removed from the earth along with the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Remember? There's going to be wars. There's going to be the four horsemen. There's going to be famines. There's going to be uh, pestilences ha happening. And we know that we are not in the tribulation yet because one of 
the plagues during the first half is a third of the whole population of the world will perish. We had COVID-19, but not one-third of 7.7 .7 billion people in the world had died, isn't it? I think it's more than like what, a million, if I'm not mistaken. So that's not a third of 7.7. .7. So we're not in that great tribulation yet. But we can feel, we can sense of it coming, isn't it? Because of the signs of the time that are happening. So it will be bad enough in the first half when the Christians are removed and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is taken away, the restrainer of evil. Add to that the hysteria of our millions of people missing and war and famine and disease and natural disasters we spoke of last week and the chaos and looting and lawlessness will be all over the world, globally. But there will be a lull, a lull or a temporary interval of quiet or lack of activity or calmness before that big storm. We are warm of a great storm coming, but in Revelation chapter 7, there is a little calm, a little interval, a little parenthesis, so to speak, before the pouring of another judgment, um, which is, there is a calmness before the big storm, which is the second half of the seven-year period. The Antichrist will seemingly succeed at bringing peace to the world after all these warring countries invade Israel, you know, Iran, Russia, and China, and those that hate him, the Arab world that hate him. And the Antichrist will be that false messiah, bring forth a false treaty, a false peace, and he will break it in the mid part, in the three and a half. And that would never happen since time beginning that he'll be able to. That's why they will be deceived, the nation of Israel. They thought that he's the real Messiah that they're waiting for. But it won't last long. The perfect storm of the ages is already brewing in the horizon. So right now, Revelation chapter 7 can help us fill in some of the blanks about what Matthew 24, 14 tells. That this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. So four things I'd like to give unto you. From Revelation chapter 7, parallel to Matthew 24, 14. All right, so that's uh, a slide taken like a few years ago when there was a war, isn't it? In the Middle East and right now, we are facing it again in a more serious degree because now more nations are involved, more countries, all right? It's a storm warning. So four things I could tell you about Revelation chapter 7, we will see the symbolism, we will see uh, a sin, we will see the saved, and we will see uh, another S, you know, okay? Revelation chapter 7, let's turn our Bible there. Uh, in verse 1, we read, the first is the symbolism of Revelation chapter 7. Verse 1, it says, we see here the four corners of the earth, all right? Four corners, we see Four winds is a symbolism, all right? Corner or wings, this is a reference to the compass. And the compass had the four quadrants of the earth, isn't it? The four direction, all right? North, south, east, and west. And the angel here is keeping the wind from blowing in any direction. And we might ask, is this a literal wind or a symbolic wind? Do I enter... Interpret prophecy symbolically or literally? How do we do that as Christians? How do the Holy Spirit teach us? The answer is yes. 
we do it both. We find out what the symbol means and we believe it literally. Amen? Amen? Amen. You get me? All right. The symbolism of the four corners are the four winds and it speaks about literally the wind. All right? I believe this wind is a symbolic wind. You know, the Learning Channel or Discovery Channel, uh, they did a full documentary on the wind. Did you see that? Of course, of course. It's been some time. Or we cannot see, really see the wind, isn't it? Basically, it's supposed to be a joke. But we see its effects, you know, when we see the branches moving, when we see hurricane or tornado, oh, we see the wind is real, all right? And this documentary, they show the importance of wind to our ecosystem and reveal the fact that life on this planet is dependent upon the wind. Don't you know that? And that we could not survive without it. Actually, in a matter of days, all of us who live in the land will perish without the direction, the ecosystem balance of the wind contributing to life here on earth. Many times throughout the Old and New Testaments, wind is used symbolically for judgment. There's a slide here. All right? Proverbs 1, 27. When you, your fear cometh, look at this judgment, desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress, all those like uh, awful things, negative things, part of judgment, and anguish cometh upon you. You know? So the whirlwind here it speaks of God's judgment. What had happened here? Uh, there are people who rejected God's counsel and did not fear Him. They did this repeatedly and judgment of God came to them. Desolation, destruction. And it was featured by a whirlwind. How about Hosea uh, chapter 8, verse 7? For they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. This speaks about the idolatry of Samaria and they are, they are unrepentant of their sin and God has to judge them because wind speaks of judgment in the bible all right hosea 13:15 just a few examples there's many hosea 13:15 though he be fruitful among his brethren an east wind shall come the wind of the lord shall come up from the wilderness and his spring shall become dry and his fountain shall be dried up he shall spoil the treasures of all pleasant vessels this is a judgment from ephraim who turn his back from God. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, the first verse that we read, these four angels are holding back the winds of judgment. Holding back the winds of judgment. There is a pause. There's a calmness after those um, four seals were, were given, those uh, pestilences from the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, there was a pause, a tranquil moment, because momentarily God wants to do something very important. And here, as I said, these are Christ speaking to the Jews. He's speaking about the great tribulation of bulk of Matthew chapter 24. We are in the tribulation in our study, but the trials of the tribulation stop momentarily. So that's the symbolism. Secondly, let's go to the sealed of Revelation chapter 7. The sealed of Revelation chapter 7. We read that a while ago in verses 2 to 4. Then we were given... From verses 5 to 8, the names of all those witnesses sealed. So there was a fifth angel, isn't it? More powerful than the first angels. He's giving them orders to seal in the foreheads 144,000 
witnesses. 12,000 from each tribe. You know? You see here, it first speaks of the tribe of Judah. How come the Savior came from the tribe of Judah? Whereby Reuben is the firstborn of Israel or Jacob. Don't you know that Reuben lost his birthright, his blessing? Because he's the first among the siblings to sin against God. You know? That's why the Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. All right, even though Judah had failed God, but God has chosen him by his wonderful grace to bring forth the Messiah. And you see also that the tribe of Dan is missing. All right? And of course, uh, you know, the tribe of Levi was plugged in to its place. You know? Perhaps they said the false prophet will come from the tribe of Dan because he will be partly Jew so the Jews can believe him. And partly Gentile. We don't really know. But we'll know when we get to heaven, isn't it? God will explain to us. You know, there's a lot of speculation. Oh, they already said it's the Pope, it's this, it's that, it's uh, a billionaire, but we don't really know. But I believe he's alive right now. He's in the sin, he's in the shadows, you know? So the tribe of Dan is missing. Jacob's blessing upon Dan was negative. The tribe of Levi was plugged into. His place and Joseph, of, of course, stands for Ephraim there of these 12 tribes. So we say that there's no lost tribes of Israel, isn't it? They are all there, they are complete. 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000. These are what we call the Jewish evangelists that will be in the Great Tribulation, that will publish and preach the gospel of the kingdom unto all nations. Aren't you glad? That God has never been without any witnesses in any age. And he is always have a remnant. You know, we believe that, especially here in America, we live in the, what we call the last days, like the Laodicean church age. A lukewarm, cool-off church. You might have sensed, like, from the COVID-19 pandemic, you've seen, like, Maybe other Christians who had fallen on the wayside in their service to God, in their relationship with God. They've been probably discouraged. They've been distracted. They were deceived by the enemy to have doubts in their minds about God and his word. When they see the suffering, when they see the injustices. But I tell you, God is still looking for a man, for a woman that will stand between the gap that will be part of that hedge, will be part of that remnant. And I hope and pray that you're one of them. Amen. That you will not get tired of knowing God. You will not get tired of serving God. You will not get tired of giving to God. You'll never get tired of witnessing to others before God because there's only a few people who are doing that. But God, I believe, still has a remnant, a faithful remnant in all ages, in all points of time, that's still true to His Word. Look at an example in Old Testament, Elijah's day in 1 Kings chapter 18. When the prophet was depressed and distressed when he thought that he's the only one left living for God. When he thought that he's the only one left who did not bow his knees to the false god called Baal. But God had to remind Elijah there are other 7,000 others more who did not bow their knees to this false god Baal. 
And we had that contest in Mount Carmel, isn't it? Oh, I love that story. Don't you love that story? That proved that Jehovah God is the only one true God. He is the living God. He is the God of all miracles. There's nothing impossible with Him. And God showed to His people who turned to idolatry that He is the one true God that they need to serve. And God used Elijah to do that miracle of sending fire out of from heaven to devour that sacrifices whom they saturated with water. What great testimony of the power of God. So don't be discouraged, folks. I'm the only one in my family member that's saved. I'm the only one in my place of work that's still witnessing, that's still trying to be honest and do what's right. I'm still one of my, my uh, classmates in my school that still believe in the Bible, that still believe in purity, in honesty. Don't be discouraged because with God in your side, you are always in the majority in God's eyes. And it's better for us to please God, whom we will give an account anyways, when He judges us than to please men. It's better by God's grace and His strength to go against the flow than try to swim with the flow, isn't it? Blended in, you know, camouflaging in because we don't want to offend somebody, because we want to tolerate everything. But truth is truth. And truth can hurt, but truth can change. Truth can give you confidence. Truth can give you security because truth will always be truth, whatever, regardless of what the culture dictates. Whatever the philosophies of this world dictates, whatever, you know, the government dictates, what the Bible says, what does saith the Lord in His Word will always be true. Because the Bible says God is always true and let man be a liar. Isn't it? So don't be discouraged if you think you're one of the faithful remnants, by the grace of God, the few that still obeying God. It's better that way, isn't it? Because we have numerous examples in the Bible for people who stand for what is right and they were blessed by God. It might be difficult, it might be hard, but it is well-pleasing to the Lord. This will be true in the tribulation. God will have His spokesman, His spokesman here on earth. It won't be me or you if you've been really saved, Amen. For at the rapture, a great spiritual vacuum will be created and that spiritual vacuum is quickly filled by these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, soul winners, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Of course, there have been and are fanatical groups today that claim to be that 144,000. We have our friends, isn't it? In the JW, the Jehovah's <coughs> Sickness <coughs> Witnesses, that truly revise their theology when they reach 144,000. It's unfair, isn't it? You're better than me, so you're part of the 144,000, and I'm not, so I'll be lost. Huh? And, you know, they're not Jewish, but they claim to be. But they change it. Of course, that's what cults are doing. When it doesn't fit in their belief system, they change the interpretation of the Bible. Many Bible scholars speculate about how these people will get saved after the rapture. The pastor must gave a, a video like... Um, uh, Jewish people, millennials, are getting saved right now because Christ was hidden to them. But with the uh, explosion of knowledge through internet, they have now access because the rabbis in the synagogue doesn't teach about Christ, about Christianity, but now they have access about those examples and, and blogs and articles and things about Jesus that had changed the world and people. And now they're seeing and now they're studying their Bibles. 
the scriptures, so they are getting saved. So, let's say the 144,000 are alive and well right now, you know, from 12 tribes. So, the question is, how will they be saved? You know, I have an answer for you. Are you ready? I don't know. <laughs> because we don't know everything, isn't it? There are things that are mysterious to us. You know, but I believe that God will make a way for them to be saved. Another example of things that we don't really know about everything, we have a slide here about the battle at Armageddon, that the blood will flow about 200 miles like a river, as deep as the horse's bridles. So as deep as their neck. That's, that's high, isn't it? That's a few feet high for 200 miles. I don't understand how a war could be so horrendous, but I believe it will happen. The Valley of Megiddo, and they said there's a narrow path there, and Russia and other countries are raising now war horses. When the armies of the world will gather at that Valley of Megiddo, we saw that plain, that valley, when we were in Israel, and the last, that's the World War III that will happen, and Christ will come after the seven years of tribulation, and he'll be the one that will do the war, and he will destroy them by the power of his brightness, isn't it? And the blood will flow 200 miles like a river. I cannot understand how could it happen, but it will happen, as the Bible predicts. J. Vernon McGee even said, some people are thinking that they know even what blood type that will be. <laughs> type O, universal. I don't know. Blood of animals, blood of humans, all together. Some think, how can, how can this 144,000 be saved? Some think it will be through the gospel literature left behind. Like the left behind series produced for the purpose of Christians leaving it to their loved ones. Articles about Christ, about the gospel. Those cheek tracks. So how about you? If you try to witness to your loved ones and friends and co-workers and they said, I don't have time for that. Probably they don't completely reject. They're just too busy. Or they, they just procrastinate. Can you leave something for them? To remember you by about what you are trying to share. A gospel track, a Bible, a left behind series, you know, some books. Maybe they'll have the time to read that and they'll have realization. But right now, if they completely reject the gospel and they said they don't believe, I believe they don't have any more chance. So some are saying through the gospel literature left behind, yes, this 144,000 can be saved. Uh, some are saying they'll be saved like the way Apostle Paul was saved, a special, personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And some of the people who are saved as a Jew right now, and even as a Muslim, those are two groups of people so hard to witness to. Said they are saved, they really come to know Christ as a Savior because they heard the gospel and they have a personal encounter with Christ. I, I, I don't judge them with their, with their view, but... It might be. Who knows? But what's important is they got saved. Amen? They realized Jesus as the Messiah, and they believe what he had done for them on the cross and his resurrection. I, I'll rejoice with that if they really got saved, because that is God's desire. But I tend to think they will put two and two together. They will see maybe the videos, the, the, the Bible, the literature that were left behind, they will study it, and Christ will deal with them in a personal way. And these 144,000 will be saved. And they will be like 144,000 Billy Grahams that will be preaching all over the world. And they will do 
what the church had failed to do for 2,000 years because we are far too comfortable in doing our job. But they will do it in less than three and a half years to preach to the nations of the whole world. You see, they are sealed in their foreheads. Whether this seal is visible or not, in verse 3, we don't know. But we do know that it guarantees them God's protection until his purpose in their life is fulfilled. Satan will hate them. The Antichrist will loathe them. And they would annihilate them in short order if they could. But once they are sealed or stamped, saying, God's private property of the Almighty. Amen? They are guaranteed protection by God until he's done with them. I'm happy to submit to you folks, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Brethren, I'm happy to report to you that if you've been born again, if you've been saved, you will enjoy that same protection. Because you are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we have the first, uh, a phrase here of the Bible, In whom ye also trusted, whom do we trusted? Jesus Christ, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after ye believed. Notice the progression. Ye heard the word of truth, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, the gospel of our salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. And then when we heard the gospel, we believed. We repented of our sins. We received Christ as our Savior. And what had happened? We were sealed. Amen. We were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of promise. And sealed during the Old Testament in ancient times like a signet of the ring of the king that makes that document permanent. You know, it cannot be changed. It is settled, it is official, it is authentic, it is genuine. When we got saved, the Holy Spirit was given to us as a down payment, as our, uh, what you call this, inheritance, as our eternal security that God's promise that He will save us ultimately until the end will happen. We are sealed, we are stamped by God, we are under God's protection. So if God is not through yet with your lives, no harm can happen to you. Missionaries go to the jungles of Africa. Missionaries go to countries where half of the population are infected with terminal disease, but they are brave and courageous to go there because they know that where God guides, He will provide protection. Where God leads, He will be able to uh, uh, give them the strength to go on because they believe that God has a purpose and a plan in their lives. And if it's not true yet with their lives, no harm or danger. Can come to them. Don't you know that if we do the will of God, if we do the plan and the purpose of God in our lives, no harm or danger can come to us. It doesn't mean we're invincible, that we'll never get sick, we'll never get persecuted, no hardship, no. I'm talking about the plans of God in your life. But I tell you on the opposite end, if you're a Christian, but you've been weak in your faith, you've been cold, you've been indifferent, you you. you you, you, you shy away from, from the things of God and, and then you turn to like the worldly things. The other way around, God can call you home prematurely. That's the warning, that's a judgment because you're now shaming His name. You're not a light now. You're, you're a salt that lost His savor. You're, you're, you're ineffective and instead of becoming a blessing, you become a curse. So there's a warning here for a Christian who deliberately, intentionally walk away from God and shaming His name. There are instances in the Bible 
where God has to call them home. You know, to save them from judgment. Do you think they will lose their salvation? If they are genuinely saved, of course, it's everlasting. It's eternal, but they will lose their joy as a Christian, their fellowship with God, and eventually they will lose any rewards. And they will face the world, the, the God of heaven, in shame. And they will regret it. They'll be sorry. They'll cry in heaven. That's a warning for all of us. You see? But if God is using you right now, that's why the time to give what we can give is now. Amen. The time to worship the Lord is now. The time to go to church is now. Yes. The time to go to give our talents, our time, our treasure is now. Yes. Because you never know what day, what the day will bring forth. You never know this will be your last day to be on earth. Oh, I'll still, I'm going to give my faith promise next, next year. I'll give my tithes and offering next year. Oh, I'll witness to this person. Even this, the, the Holy Spirit of God is tugging my heart. Maybe there's another chance. No, do it now. Because you don't control, you don't hold the events in your life. It might be the last time that God will give you an opportunity. And you know, you, you, you'll not do it in your own strength, in your own way. That's why you always pray to God, God help me, I need you. Strengthen me. Give me the boldness. Help me to warn this person about the lake of fire. Help me warn this person about the coming great tribulation. Help me warn this person there's a great storm coming in the horizon. Let him see or let her see your grace. Let him or her see your, your, your mercy. Let him, her or see your love. Help me to be your channel. Help me your, to be your testimony. And when you pray that, God will give you the courage and the boldness and the wisdom. And it's always a great feeling and a privilege to be used by God. Yes, we all fall short, isn't it? We do. We aren't faithful at times, but aren't you glad our God is still faithful? He's still faithful. He's still true. I'm happy to report to you if you've been saved, you've been sealed, and you've been secured. And you are safe always and forever in the hands of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. That seal stamps you as a private property of God. And give not the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed unto the day of what? Redemption. What is that redemption? Our full redemption. When Christ comes into this earth in the trumpet sound of the rapture and he will give us a glorified body and we'll be freed from this old nature that we have. We still have it. The old sinful nature is still war against our flesh. The natural man and the spiritual man every day. But in that full redemption, we'll be free. Full and forever. Because of what Christ had promised. You know, you are sealed by God. And you can look back at over the years and times where probably the enemy, Satan, and the devil tried to make a bid for your life. And if it were not for God's protective hand, you would not be here today. How many of you can testify to that? There are times... I should have died. I should have been to a terrible accident. I should have died in that sickness or some misfortune, an incident, but God spared me. You know, I, I, I believe I've been to like three vehicular accidents. There are times I tried to run away from God. There are times I tried to believe the devil's lie. And um, I tried to do things on my own. And God has taught me some hard lessons. But God spared my life. When the devil tried to kill me and destroy me, probably some of you had experienced that. Um, some have near that experiences. And uh, we can say your guardian angel should receive hazard pay, isn't it? I didn't smile. 
Your guardian angel should receive hazard pay sometimes. How uh, their BCR protecting you from the devil and to yourself. But God is gracious. He's there. Because you were sealed. Until God is finished and through with you. Until you fulfill His purpose and plan in your life. We're not invincible at all. I may, I may die during this preaching. You know, I have a heart attack, you know. But if I do, one thing is certain. God's purposes were totally and completely fulfilled in my life. I am protected from start to finish, whenever that may be. So this seal also guarantees this 144,000 cannot be touched by Satan, by the enemies of the gospel until they preach all over the world. Thirdly, we need to go on. We need to end. Amen? The save of the revelation. Not only the symbolism, the seal, but the save. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7 of Revelation. All right? Look at all the save out of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues before the throne. Isn't it? They stood. Right? This group is not just Jews. This is a massive group from all people's kindred and tongues. Though we're not told specifically who these are, most scholars agree that these are the fruits of the witnessing and soul winning done by the 144,000 evangelists. They are in heaven in this sin during the tribulation because they were killed for their faith in Christ. They refused to worship the beast and bow to the Antichrist. They would not take the mark of the beast and it cost them their heads. All right, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. All right? Okay. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. And we touched about it last Sunday. And then shall the wicked, capital W, who is that? The ultimate Antichrist, the false Messiah, the man of sin, son of perdition. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. That is the time when he comes back on the seventh year end of the tribulation. And this Antichrist will gather the armies of the world and fight him. And he shall be destroyed with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. That's why he's so charismatic. He can perform miracles. He can form signs and wonders. And he can speak eloquently. A worldwide ruler, dictator. And with all deceivableness, deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not, take note, the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong, what? Delusion. That they should believe a, what? A lie. That they shall that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In unrighteousness. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24 also states, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall shew great signs and wonders, insomuch if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. God has to shorten the great tribulation seven years, because if it is possible, which is not, they could even deceive the elect during the time of the great tribulation. It's like they say, in this passage of scripture, God, I don't want to go your way. I want to go my way. An unbeliever says, and God says, okay, and he'll give them a show because he will let them be if they truly and repeatedly reject him. Some say, I'm not going to believe this preaching, this teaching. I'm going to see if it all comes to pass. I'll wait. And if it's true, then I'll get saved. Well, of course, you won't get saved now, 
then you wouldn't be saved then during the Great Tribulation. Because in the age of grace, everything right now is working for you. But in the Great Tribulation, so much is working against you. This is not a second chance for those who already rejected the gospel, but a last and only chance for those who've never heard. That's why the 144,000 will come and preach. See? The Bible teaches that when you reject the truth, you will receive a lie. God will strand a strong delusion. You know why? Because truth is not something you can put into your pocket and use it later. Because truth, when presented to you, when you don't use it, you will lose it. And it will be replaced by something that is a lie. See, a person who's witnessed today, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is upon their hearts that they are sinners, they cannot save themselves, and they reject. They reject. Constantly, repeatedly reject. When the tribulation comes, even if they say, oh, millions of Christians are gone, they will believe a lie. God will strengthen them a strong delusion and they will take the mark. And that will doom them forever. But the blessing is multitudes will be saved. Jews and Gentiles alike by the program of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will be preaching. And lastly, the scene in heaven, verse 11 and 12. And we'll conclude with this. Thank you for your patience. Listening, while a storm is brewing below, uh, we read, it says there, And now all the angels stood round about the throne, about the elders and the four beasts, fell before the throne of their faces, and worshipped God, and saying, Amen, blessings, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. While there is a storm brewing on, on the earth during that great tribulation day, and there's preaching, but we can see here a scene in heaven. There's amening. Amen? We have an amen corner here. All right. There's whooping and hollering at the incredible mercy of God that saves this multitude out of the tribulation. All right. There you go. You say, I think there's nothing wrong with getting excited about the Lord. Amen? Sometimes around here, I wonder if people think that saying amen, you'll be fine for $50. You know, they're not. They are free. Amen. It's like saying sikkim to a dog, isn't it? When you say amen, the preacher will preach longer. That's why some, sometimes you don't say it, you know. And I don't have to coax you to remind you, amen, for, for every phrase that I say. You can say it in your heart unto God. You agree, isn't it? So let's say amen every now and then. Let's be excited. And some say, um, I think church should be dignified. Hmm. I do too. If you're talking about things about being done decently and in order, especially in how we conduct our business. But this is about business. This is about praising God. Some people don't know the difference between dignity and rigor mortis. <laughs> Some Christians are like wooden Indians. Yeah, They just look at you. All right? What are these in uh, verses 16 and 17? These are the martyrs who've been, who've been beheaded by guillotine, you know? These were skilled for their faith during the tribulation, but those tears won't last long, isn't it? They are the people who were before the throne of God, and the Bible says they will hunger no more, thirst anymore, neither the sun 
light on them, nor any heat for the Lamb, which in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Look at that great scene of this multitude getting saved during the great tribulation. But, you know, they got saved by paying, heeding it with their own life. He that persevere unto the end shall be saved. They have to have severe persecution and horrible deaths because they are hunted, because they don't have the mark of the beast. But they did not recant their faith. They stayed true to God. And these are the multitudes that were killed for their faith. But the Bible says those tears won't last long. Isn't it some of the tenderest memories of childhood you have and I have are having tears dried up by our moms or dads when we were afraid, when we were so worried, when we were frightened? You know, you know I have uh, kids in their age that, you know, during a thunderstorm or something, they had a nightmare, they are tearful and they come and they want to be comforted. They want to be assured that everything's going to be okay. You know, don't you look forward to the day you can sit on the knee of our Heavenly Father and He will wipe away the tears of everything that's bad or negative that happened in your life. You know? It's not the angels. It's not the Old Testament saints. But it's our Heavenly Father Himself that will wipe away those tears. Injustices that you've suffered, they will be made right by our Heavenly Father. Problems that you've suffered, now they're gone when we get to heaven. Questions that you have about different things, and they'll be answered and explained when we get to heaven. Every tear wipe away. God does not delegate this job to the angels, nor to any, anybody in heaven but Himself. He shall wipe away all tears from our eyes personally. Don't you look forward to that day? Do you, God's people? But the question is, will you be there? Will you be there? There's a storm warning. It's brewing on the horizon. We can see the signs of the times. So right now, if you're not saved, get saved. Right now, if you're not right with God, get right with God. Amen. While there's still time. Know Him, serve Him, love Him. Because something worth doing and worth living. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your precious word. Thank you, Lord, for this warning. A great storm is coming. But thanks be to God, we can be assured that if we're a child of God right now, if we're a born-again believer, we've been saved from the wrath to come. Because God's wrath and judgment against sin was already poured out on Christ when He was hanging on the cross. But this doesn't mean that we should live a life of license to sin, just doing whatever we please. Because we, if we are truly a child of God, there's a new nature inside of us. We will desire to know God. We will desire to do good works. Because since the root of our salvation had taken effect in our lives, there should be fruit that be seen, that will be seen and will remain. We could never just stay the way we are before we got saved. There will be marks and evidences that truly that we're born again. And as we believe that it's only grace alone that saves us this undeserved and merited favor, but once we are saved, grace is never alone for a Christian. We are created unto good works. We are created as a workman of the Lord. 
Now we are serving Him, not ourselves, not the world, not our earthly temporal pleasures, but we are serving now the one who loved us, who died us, who died for us, who is preparing a place for us. And as God's people pray, we'll have a short invitation. Whatever God has spoken into your heart as a believer, maybe you have a loved one, you have somebody that's dear to your heart that's not walking in God's way and will. They've been deceived by the world, by Satan. They're just living for the pleasures of this world, not thinking about eternity, not thinking about their personal relationship with the Lord. We have to reach out to them in love. We have to speak the word in truth, but also in love. We have to have a burden to reach out and tell them there's a judgment coming. Are you prepared to meet God? Have you made some arrangements? Have you set your house in order? If not, there's a still a time and a chance to get right with the Lord. God is an all-forgiving God. He will rather forgive than judge, isn't it? For a child of God. But be warned, if we are stubborn and hard-headed, He will act accordingly to His nature. For an unrepentant, wayward child of God. That's a warning for all of us. So we need to take heed. But for a person here who's not saved, what I mean, you don't have a personal relationship with Christ. You know Him in your mind, in your head, but you don't really experience Him in your heart. I invite you, why not trust Him today? He did everything for you to escape the coming great tribulation. Escape the judgment. All you need to do is receive Him. Trust Him in your heart as your Savior. You can pray this way. Call upon Him in salvation and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in the gospel that you died for me. You were buried and you rose again. You shed your blood for my forgiveness. I know that I'm lost. I want you to forgive me of all my sins. And by faith, I ask you to come into my heart and life to be my personal Lord and Savior. Save me at this moment. I cry and believe in your name today. In your name I pray. Amen. That's a prayer that the Lord will always hear and answer. A prayer of a lost son or daughter, a lost sheep that needs direction that needs saving. If you're that person, if you did that, let us know. But for Christians here, I won't have to, the time to invite you to come into the altar, but in the altar of your heart, speak to God, wherever you are right now. Tell to the Lord, Lord, by your grace, help me to prepare before I meet you face to face. Maybe by the way of the rapture or maybe with the way of death, whatever it is, Help me, Lord, to be in tune with you. Help me to walk in faith and obey you. Help me to use what you've given me and trusted me for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom, for the blessing of those that need spiritual blessings. This is my heart's desire. Father in heaven, we come to you as your people your children asking for your mercy and grace asking for your intervention in our lives hear the prayers of thy people 
whatever they like to commit, whatever decision they want to make for your glory, Lord. Listen to it, answer it according to your will. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, brethren, for listening to the word of God.